2: Welcome to The Flowered Path. May 13th is the anniversary of the first apparition of the Blessed Virgin which appeared to the seers at Fatima. Last year, Brother Richard and I did a long-form breakdown of the Fatima events on my other podcast, Strange Familiars. Instead of trying to recreate that conversation, I thought I would present it again as a bonus episode for listeners of The Flowered Path. This is part one of our talk. i'd like to welcome brother richard back to the show how are you doing brother richard
3: i'm good and it's it's good to be back with you as always
2: well thank you for coming back i know this is a topic we've both been kind of excited about covering but uh, before we get into that
3: you have a book that is about (laughs) to be published you're very kind. I don't think it's. I don't think it should come first. Yeah. Over the last year and a bit, I've slowly been collating some of the writings that have been online and some of the bits and pieces that I've done in terms of retreat work and things like that. And after the old lockdown poem went viral, uh, there was a publisher came nosing around, and they were interested in putting something together. So yeah, on on the twenty second of September, it will come out. At least it comes out in Ireland and Europe. I think in Canada, America, the rest of the world, it comes out January, but it is available for kind of pre-order and things like that. So it's called Still Points. And it's a kind of book that sort of follows the calendar of the year, uh, the various natural seasons, and then some of the feasts of the saints and holy days that come along as we go through the year. And it just invites people into kind of slowing down, reflecting, being a bit more meditative, uh, a bit more aware of of um, what's going on and sort of dwelling in, in the beauty at the heart of things that's the idea behind it anyway hopefully that's what it'll accomplish for people and there's an audiobook too there is so if you really can't get enough of this voice this croaky voice you're more than welcome to listen to it that way and it's available on kindle as well i believe excellent well i'm looking forward to it
2: i'm sure strange familiars listeners will be looking forward to it it's available all the places
3: yeah all the usual places and you know as always while Amazon might be a wonderful channel, and it's there, and it's great, and the book's up on it, you know, if you can find it in your, or through your independent bookstore, please do that, if, if at all possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Well,
2: let's get into Fatima. But before that, I guess we have to talk about Marian apparitions in general, and kind of sure. lay of groundwork here. Okay. I guess we should go over what they are and what
3: they aren't. Okay, well, maybe if we start with, with Mary herself, I suppose, for people who maybe are outside of of the Christian tradition or or have some kind of, you know, vague understanding of who she is. So when we speak of Mary, of of Marian apparitions within the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, we would have what we call a high Mariology. So Mary is extremely important within the tradition, and, and that's also true in some of the Protestant denominations, some of the others slightly less important. But at the very least, if we start from the very basic, she is the human mother of Jesus. And so we speak of Mary as Mary of Nazareth, a woman who lived in in first century Palestine and who, through her saying yes to God, allowed the incarnation, what we believe to be the descent of the second person of the Trinity, the logos, the uncreated word, to assume humanity through her uh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And and that's what the tradition teaches. That's what we believe. Within the Catholic and Orthodox teachings, there would be what we call the three Marian dogmas or or the three Marian teachings, uh, which refer to her immaculate conception. So that is that she was conceived naturally and normally by her parents, Joachim and Anne. They're the the names that have come down to us through the tradition, the, the, the grandfather and grandmother of Jesus. But that she was conceived immaculately, which means that, Through the grace of God, who sees through time that the incarnation and redemption will take place, Mary receives a special dispensation to be free of original sin, so that she might be a worthy place and space and cooperator with the word in, in the incarnation. So I don't want to get into high theology or anything else with that, but that's just kind of the first of the dogmas that sort of renders her special. And in the very early days of the church within certainly within the second century if not within the first mary was already being referred to in greek as theotokos which means the one who bears god within her or the one through whom god comes or simply god bearer and that's the title that that she had from the earliest days within the church the second of the dogmas is that she uh, is perpetually virgin uh, which means that even the birth of christ was accomplished in some mystical way the church doesn't say how, but in some mystical way, that her physical virginity was preserved. Some of the mystics speak of Christ being born through Mary as a sunbeam passes through a window, which I think is a beautiful image. And that's not in any way to denigrate physical motherhood or physical birth, uh, which is one of the the great sacred gifts. But it's it's a reminder to us, I suppose, that um, the divinity of Christ is operative within the the birth within the um, the moment of Christ's coming into the world. The third Marian dogma, the final one, is the Assumption of Mary, that Mary, at the end of her natural life, is assumed body and soul into heaven. That she touches death for just a moment and then follows her Son through, who, who himself had ascended, and so is one of the few whose bodily experience, bodily remains, are assumed into heaven, and so she is present in both glorified body and soul in heaven, which is a destiny that Christianity believes will happen to all of us in time, but is through special privilege given to to one or two. So there is the, um, in the Old Testament, we know Elijah was assumed body and soul into heaven. In the New Testament time, we speak of Mary, obviously following her son Christ. And there are various traditions, um, not canonical ones by any means, but various traditions that some others may have been granted this gift as well along the way. So it places her in a very particular position. And I suppose throughout Christian tradition, certainly for the first thousand years of the Christian tradition, Mary is seen as being someone who is the mother of all Christians, that Christ on the cross, when he says to to St. John, behold your mother, he is saying that to all of us in the person of John. And when he says to Mary, behold, your son, about John, he's saying that about all of his followers. And so in that way, Mary is seen as the mother of all. Now, in Hebrew tradition, what's really interesting is that the the king and the queen had a very different relationship. In the Hebrew tradition, the king, you know, married and indeed married many um, for the the sake of political alliance, etc. But his wives were not the queen. The queen in Israel was always the mother of the king. Ah, And her job was to monitor the king's fidelity to the covenant. And so it's a very, very interesting tradition, completely different to what we would see in, in any of the other societies at the time. And so, obviously, a Jewish community is where Christianity begins. And so very quickly, Mary was seen as as the queen, as someone who had a power to intercede with her son in a very particular way. I mean, his first miracle uh, in Scripture is at her word, the miracle of Cana, when he changes the water into wine. He does that at her request. And so Mary then is later seen at the foot of the cross as one of the cooperators with Christ in his death and in his, his resurrection. And in both Catholic and Orthodox theology, she would be seen as as the, the mediatrix or co redemptrix Now, we believe there is only, within the tradition, there's only one redeemer. Mm -hmm. We are redeemed by the life and death of Christ. But co-redemptrix in the sense that Mary represents humanity and is humanity's yes to what is going on. And so by the end of the first century, we speak of Christ as the new Adam, but Mary as the new Eve, that she is the one who brings forth the word into the world. And without her, yes, the Incarnation would have had to take place in, a, in another way. So they're the kind of basic, very basic traditions, just to sort of situate that in context. In terms of Marian apparitions, the first apparition of Mary takes place while she's still alive. In Catholic tradition, in the very early tradition, there is the apparition to St. James the Apostle. If anybody out there has ever heard of the Camino de Santiago, the great pilgrimage route through Europe, which is to the tomb of St. James, there is the story that at some point... James is quite despondent in his mission and things aren't going too well and he's a bit down and feeling, you know, persecuted and the things are difficult for him. And while praying, the story is that, that Mary was brought from Nazareth to console him uh, and to, to speak to him and to, to intercede and, and to pray with him. And that's supposed to be during her physical life when she was still alive and on earth. So the Marian apparitions get, get underway very quickly in the tradition. After that, there's the difference between what we call a private apparition. So somebody in prayer receives a grace or an apparition, um, a presence of of Mary that's just specifically for them, you know, a consoling word from your mother kind of Mm -hmm. idea. And then we have the public apparitions, things like Lourdes, uh, Fatima that we're going to talk about, um, the apparition at Knock in Ireland and many others throughout history where Mary always seems to appear at a crisis point in history, at a time when the faith is undergoing great strain or persecution, and comes to console or to teach, sometimes to reprimand, as all good mothers do, and and sometimes to simply invite people into deeper prayer or deeper awareness. Uh, So those apparitions have taken place throughout Christian history.
2: Yeah, there seems to be a few things that are at least me as I'm, I'm doing reading and doing the research from that seem mm. to be consistent throughout these apparitions. Um, sure. Messages, sometimes secrets. I mean, it seems yeah. often they're secrets imparted to mm-hmm. the seers. By the seers, we mean the people who are experiencing the apparition. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So secrets, we talked a little bit before we hit record about the extraordinary memory that seers seem to be gifted with. Mm. Which is a, an important point to touch on I think because the recollection of these visions is very detailed that uh, uh, the, sure. the seers have.
3: Sure. I, I suppose one of the things we can talk about for a moment is the different kinds of of vision, really, that the, the tradition supports. And I know we'll expand this out into a wider conversation about parallels within the whole supernatural phenomena, but just coming from the tradition itself in terms of how it identifies the various forms of supernatural communication, there are there are numerous ones. So we would speak firstly and a sort of most simply of what we just call inspirations uh, and, and we all know what they are you know those little moments of intuition or inspiration or movement within ourselves that sometimes seem to come from within sometimes seem to come from without but move us into being in the right place at the right time or you know help us along the way and they're seen as as coming from from the spiritual world though maybe it's impossible to identify you know what source particularly they're coming from After that, we have what are called locutions, and that's where a voice is heard that is separate to the person's voice or separate to their own inner monologue. And locutions can come from, you know, a good source or from a negative source. Um, There's a difference between what we call interior locution, which is where the one who receives it is the only one who hears it, and exterior locution, where someone hears it and other people around them hear the voice at the same time so you might get a group for example would hear it though sometimes again in the presence of an exterior locution different people can hear different things they can all agree that they heard a voice or that they heard a masculine voice or a feminine voice or they can agree who they believe the voice was but they may not necessarily hear the same thing interesting some some may hear words some may only hear sounds around that and we see that in the in the fatima apparitions as we go forward St. Joan of Arc is probably one of the most famous people to have received locutions. And she believed she was speaking to, at different times, Our Lord, Our Lady, um, St. Catherine and St. Michael, amongst others. And they were her guides and her guards along the way. And uh, again, the external voice from a spiritual authority is something that is common to all traditions, you know, all places. But when we move into visions, first and foremost, we have what are called intellectual visions. So this is a vision whereby through the mind's eye, we see something, the mind's eye or the third eye or whatever, whatever form of internal visioning you want to call that. So the person is aware that this is not externally present, it is internally present. And the person might be caught up in an experience of, of ecstasy or stillness or numinosity, or, um, where every time they close their eyes, they see this vision. You'll often find with some of the, the seers of intellectual visions that it's like watching a movie uh, in front of their mind's eye. If they open their eyes, the movie stops. When they close their eyes, it continues from where it, from where they stopped. So it's a, a visionary experience. And this, again, it, it should be absolutely stated. When we speak of these kinds of visions, this is not because of any substance that anybody has taken. It's not because of any, I suppose, uh, external experience. This is something that happens for the person, interior experience. Uh, visions like this, the intellectual vision is often spoken of as like almost having a dream, but in a waking state at the same time. We then have imaginal visions, and these are always really interesting ones because I tend to find people forget that their own psychology can be at play within the visionary experience. And this is what we mean by imaginal visions. The best way of describing this actually has come about recently, which is where we all have these lovely filters on our phones. So we can hold up the phone and put a filter on and suddenly we have, you know, very strange uh, characteristics over our faces okay. or we can have animals in the room or we can have, you know, lighting effects or whatever. But if you look beyond the phone, you realize the world is exactly the same as, as it was. And so an imaginal vision is where the spiritual source, whatever it might be, positive or negative, is using elements of the person's own psyche to build the image in such a way that the person is able to discern a clear vision but for example you would have experiences where somebody might be seeing a spiritual entity but the entity can appear in different forms to different people because it's using the individual psyche and um, i often think of your famous show about the uh, the person who saw the sort of the, the, the white Bigfoot, the, the black Bigfoot, and then nothing. Right, yeah. This to me would be a clear example of an imaginal vision. Um, so it's the, the co-creation aspect where the, the spiritual entity, whatever it is, sort of reaches within and finds the library within us of imagery. Uh, it's interesting within the, the sort of mystical tradition within Christianity, it's believed that every image we have ever seen or experienced becomes part of us. The image that's often used—it's only metaphor—but the image that's often used is that the soul is soft like melted wax, and whatever it beholds or receives through its senses impresses itself upon the soul. And so, part of spiritual purification begins with what we call imaginal purification, which is removing the images we don't want from the library, and sort of purifying the images through meditation, etc., and things like that, so that we have a clearer vision of these things when they arise. Or when they arrive but basically an imaginal vision is one that is being built by an external entity from internal elements so i hope that that makes sense in, yeah. in, in some way yeah then we come to what we would call formal apparition so formal apparition is where an external spiritual entity reveals itself to the individual now this might be that everybody sees it so for example in the apparition at knock In Ireland, anybody who came to the place saw the vision, saw saw it exactly as it was. They all agreed in what they were seeing, it was the same thing and people could go away and come back and the vision was still the same. In Fatima, we have the experience of both angelic and Marian apparitions where, depending on which of the three seers we're speaking of, there was a slightly different experience for all three. We can talk about that as we go along. Mm -hmm. But we would still speak of that as an external apparition because of the ongoing conversation, the dialogue, the fact that um, as the visions proceed, the children are given terms and concepts that they would have been completely unaware of, but all of which were theologically correct and appropriate for what the messages were. And so there are various ways of kind of testing those end of things. And they were applied in in this instance. Which,
2: you know, happened at Lourdes too. Uh,
3: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you have this young um, illiterate peasant, as they called her at the time. It wasn't a pejorative term at the time. It was an actual kind of category of um, social life, who is suddenly speaking... Theological language that was astounding the theologians of the time, who kept trying to correct her. Of course, <laughs> these these men tried to correct her over and over again. She stuck to her guns, and what's really interesting is she was speaking theology that really is present only within the mystical Marian tradition, and was affirmed um, by the Church, you know, years years later. So it's it's interesting to note how these concepts appear. And appear to people and are spoken through people who wouldn't ordinarily be expected to have such knowledge.
2: Before we get into the story of Fatima proper I do want to address one thing I've heard other paranormal podcasts cover it and they in my opinion they do a disservice when they just say oh it's a UFO (laughs) and sign off it and my take on that is believe the religious parts or don't but you have to believe the witnesses. Uh, mm. If the witnesses are saying this is what I saw, and you're going to believe a witness when they say they saw a grey alien, uh, mm. you, you need to believe these witnesses when they say they saw Mary. That's just be honest mm. about the way we treat people within the paranormal. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's a couple of things around it. I suppose I remember the first time I read Jacques Villet's summary of Fatima, and I was really taken aback by just how how little of it he was covering.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Now, obviously, everybody has to make editorial uh, efforts to make books readable and things like that, and and where he was talking about it was not in a book on Fatima. But it astounded me that a man who was so astute and so aware of the subtleties that happen in, in various paranormal phenomena was sort of with a stroke of a pen just dismissing this as, you know, a religious apparition took place, it's all coming from the same phenomena, Therefore, we can categorize it as, you know, a, a, a UFO experience. And if your judgment is it's all coming from the same place, great, that's fine. But even if it's coming from the same place, it is manifesting in a different way. Yeah. And I think what's important is for people to recognize that if we want to really understand what's going on, if we decide that there's one root phenomenon from which it all comes, then we do a big disservice to it if we immediately begin to to group these manifestations into categories of our making i think when it comes to looking at it from from the religious perspective i think you're only going to understand fatima just as a historical event not necessarily as a religious event you're only going to understand it as a historical event if you actually wade in to the um the community of faith from which this comes Mm -hmm. and also do them do them the service of recognizing that, you know, they know of which they speak right. um, in exactly the same way as you would if you were going to interview an indigenous tribe somewhere in the world. We, we now know what it's like when, you know, men, it's usually men and it's usually white Western men walk mm-hmm. in and with their big shoes stamp all over what people understand or don't understand and begin to impose their particular views I would say you're dealing with something similar when somebody just dismisses automatically, um, you know, all Marian apparitions, whether they dismiss them as hysterical human events or whether they dismiss them as UFO events. The important thing is to recognize, you know, we have an event here that's numinous and unusual, and we could probably learn from it if we actually let the people tell their story one of the
2: main rules of strange familiars is we don't tell people what they saw Mm. we let people Mm. tell us what they saw sure and and that applies to this and i would just ask the listeners to do the same just listen to what the story was
3: from the people who saw it and by the way i think I, i want to be very clear i'm not obviously i'm coming from a faith perspective myself but I'm not in any way saying that it's wrong to say, oh, here are similarities, here are parallels, here are things that that sort of overlap and that we can look at and that we can um, investigate. I suppose the perspective I come from is that I think it's more human-centered in that I believe we have a capacity within us to receive numinous phenomena and that when we tune into those channels, whether it's a UFO experience or a Marian religious experience or an interior experience of, you know, Ayahuasca or one of these, these individuals, the same channels are in use. But, you know, in the same way you tune in your radio or your TV, the programming may be different mm-hmm. and come from a different source, even though it's using the same technology to arrive. So that's the kind of perspective I would take, yeah, at least I, as we
2: begin. I've borrowed your, uh, your phrasing on that a good bit (laughs) feel free (laughs) so if we want to start with fatima we got to start with world war one i think Mm -hmm. which starts in 1914 fatima's in portugal it's a little area in portugal a little very rural parish Mm -hmm. and portugal itself tried to stay neutral but was drawn into the conflict by Mm -hmm. Uh, March of six nineteen sixteen. That's when Germany declared war on Portugal. There was something else happening in Portugal at the time as well. There was the government of the First Republic took over in nineteen ten. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Portugal was previously a very pro-Catholic state, and
3: what the government that came into power in nineteen ten was very anti-Catholic.
2: Mm.
3: Absolutely, you had you have this extraordinary experience in many of these countries at the time. Which moves into Spain later, where you have a populace who are very Catholic and still continue to be Catholic in practice, but a sort of a a nobility slash ruling class slash government uh, who takes a very anti-church understanding. And this was as nationalism was really beginning to come to the fore. And so bodies that were pan-national were considered with great suspicion. Um, and so the church was seen to be um, a kind of a pan-nationalist organisation, and so particularly, and also, mind you, it, because of its its traditional support of the, the sort of uh, old style of aristocratic hierarchy as well, which has to be said, it was a negative for the church, but but it, it certainly was something that the church had done mm-hmm. because it saw that as kind of supporting the old idea of divine monarchy. Both of those things alienated to the church from the, the the kind of ruling class and governments at the time
2: amidst all this upheaval there's an eight-year-old girl named lucia dos santos she lived in the parish of fatima one day in 1915 she's tending her sheep in a meadow on mount Kabako with three other young girls after lunch they say the rosary this was a daily practice for them they, yeah, it, it should
3: also be said that they said the rosary as children do, which is, and she says herself in one of her in one of her memoirs, they said the rosary as quickly as possible, yes. shortening the prayer so they could get to their games as quickly as they could. Yeah, I think she <laughs> so, just said
2: they would say Hail Mary for each, just just Hail Mary, yeah, not the prayer exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, After they say the rosary, they see this strange cloud above the trees in the valley below them. They they describe mm-hmm. it as whiter than snow, almost transparent, but in a human form. Mm-hmm. Lucia would witness the same phenomenon two more times that year and later she would come to understand this is the figure of an angel mm. in 1916 she's with her two younger cousins Jacinta who was six or seven at the time I'm not sure exactly the timeline and Francisco who had just turned eight and usually children younger than eight they didn't let him go out with the sheep but Lucia had a very strong connection apparently with children loved her and yeah. they just wanted to be with her so much that they just begged their parents to be allowed to, to go out to, you know, take their sheep out to
3: pasture with Lucia. Yeah, I, I think you, you have that sort of agricultural culture at the time where, where children were the workforce mm-hmm. um, ver, very often. They had far more responsibility than we would ever give children now. You oh, know? yes. Um, I mean, just sent off for the day, you know, to mind sheep and given a, a stick to sort of drive off any wild animal that might turn up. What's interesting as well, I suppose, about the, about them is that there is a, a, a kind of a, a relationship very quickly of huge trust between the three of them. Lucy, at one stage, speaking of Francesco's character, speaks of him as, as you know, if she told him to stand there or sit there, he would simply do it and would stay there until he was called again. Hmm. So there there was a, a kind of an obedience to her. They recognized in her kind of a voice of authority, I think, as, as the older girl, even though she was only, you know, a year or two older than them.
2: On this particular day, they had taken shelter from the rain amidst some boulders and they, they ate lunch and again prayed the rosary and they heard a powerful wind. Mm-hmm. Which uh, We can draw comparisons between that and UFOs and fairies and many, many other things.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there in Strange Familiar's land who are ticking boxes uh, as you're describing all of the various elements assembling everything from the boulder field to the cloud to the wind. Yeah, yeah. And they
2: they said they could see the olive trees swaying and creaking, a light coming toward them, and they described it again as whiter than snow. This comes up again and again. Mm. In the center of this light is the form of a young man who, again, was almost transparent, gleaming and crystalline, and appeared to be about 14 years of age, and more beautiful, they said, than anything they'd ever seen to that time. And I, Lucia recognizes this, then, as the same figure she had seen before, once mm. she sees it.
3: We often find with Marian apparitions, if we look a little earlier, if we, you can actually get the visionaries or the seers to speak of, you know, numinous events that had happened earlier than the apparitions. There are usually angelic apparitions that seem to prepare for the coming of the main event, as it were. Yeah, it happens quite often in these.
2: The figure begins to speak, says, do not fear, I am the angel of peace, pray with me. He then kneels and touches his forehead to the ground. Joseph Pelletier, uh, Father Joseph Pelletier, wrote Mm -hmm. a book called The Sun Danced at Fatima. I'm gonna borrow his line on this. He said the children were moved by a supernatural impulse to do Mm -hmm. the same. So they imitated the angel. Mm who's taught them a prayer. He said, My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I implore your pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. Mm-hmm. The angel rose up and said, Pray that way. The hearts of Jesus and Mary are attentive to the voice of your supplications. Again, I want to make an aside here. There's religious talk in these messages, and you mm-hmm. can believe the religious parts or not, but I think it's important we have these supernatural entities talking, and we actually have their words. Where they have quotes, I'm going to quote them, because I think mm. it's important when we get the actual words from these entities.
3: Mm. And not just the words, but the action is very interesting. This was not a posture of prayer or meditation that these young people would have been familiar with in any way at all. Mm. Obviously, th- those those of us who, who kind of have a wider knowledge would, would see it present within the Muslim community. It's a very ancient posture within the monastic mystical tradition and so both within orthodoxy and within catholicism within the monastic tradition we would pray like this quite often in terms of the prostration that's there where the head is touched to the ground mm. uh, in, in fact the first action the first action of every franciscan in the morning um, traditionally was to kiss the ground and to touch the ground with your head as a act of gratitude for a new day beginning so it's, it's interesting already that, that even the methodology that's been given to the children is something that they would never have seen anywhere. It's not in Catholic public liturgy, but it is something that is very ancient and very mystical. And this is also parallel with the book of the Apocalypse, where it speaks of the angels bowing down and prostrating before, before mm-hmm.
2: God. And here we get back to this extraordinary memory gifted to the mm-hmm. seers, that they recall this prayer and i mean what eight-year-old could come up or 12-year-old even could come Mm. up with this prayer right this is a a very not something a child would come up with uh let's say that and not only do they remember it but they begin to repeat this prayer and repeat this this action this uh over and over in their daily life but um Back to this day, after the angel departs, Mm. they remain prostrate. They repeated this prayer over and over again for a long time, and they spent the rest of the day in silence, and they don't even tell anybody about this until
3: later. Mm. There seems to have been a real impression within them that this was something, it it wasn't said to them by the angel, but there was an impression within them of not sharing this with anyone. Yeah. And in fact, at this point, they don't even speak amongst themselves about it. The only thing that happens is Francesco, uh, who doesn't hear the voice of the angel, he sees the angel, but doesn't he never actually hears the voice of the apparitions along the way, is asking uh, Lucia and and Jacinta to tell him what was it the angel said. Um, he learns the prayer by hearing the girls pray the prayer um, yeah. out loud. That's how he receives the prayer. And um his description of the angel is exactly the same. The three of them were always in unity in terms of what they saw, apart from one of the later apparitions, which we'll get to, where, depending on the seer, they saw slightly different things. But what's interesting is, is that, you know, he, he asks Lucia, you know, what else did the angel say? He asks Jacinta the same. And the two of them actually physically can't answer him at that moment. They keep telling him, we'll, we'll talk later. Mm-hmm. For now, we just need to think about the angel." That's something that they keep talking about, is thinking about the angel, which is really interesting. For young, gregarious children to suddenly choose silence and stillness, there's some interesting um, movement going on, at least intellectually, with that. that.
2: Yeah, particularly uh, Jacinta, she made a real change before and after these apparitions. She's described... Beforehand, is uh, honestly, Lucia describes her as kind of a brat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, she really makes a change; like her whole character changes for the better, for the, in a very positive mm-hmm. way. If we move to the summer of 1916, the Mm -hmm. children are playing at the well behind the Dos Santos house, Lucia's parents' house, Mm -hmm. and the same angel just suddenly appears and says, what are you doing? Pray. Pray a great deal. The hearts of Jesus and Mary have designs of mercy on you. Offer prayers and sacrifices continually to the Most High. And Lucia... Ask back how are we to offer sacrifices the angel says make a sacrifice of everything that you can and offer it to the lord as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and of supplication for the conversion of sinners in this way draw peace upon your country i am its guardian angel the angel of portugal above all accept and bear with submission the suffering that the lord will send to you and again the angel disappeared
3: mm. it's interesting i suppose number one the angel describing itself as the guardian angel of a country But this is very ancient theology. Again, it goes right the way back even to the Old Testament, where a number of times within the scriptures, both Israel is described as having an angel, and and in fact, at one point, uh, Persia is described as having an angel as well, and that one of the angels goes to help another one in in a conflict. So there's this idea that there is a replication, or uh, the implication at least, that any conscious gathering of people, any sort of um, nation or, or group has its own angel. And this was certainly the teaching of, of some of the mystical theologians all the, way, all the way down, that any group or any large tribe or family gathering has an angel to kind of guide it or to, to intercede on its behalf. The other thing that's really fascinating at this point is this is where we begin to see a real shift in, in interior spirituality, mm-hmm. very quickly the children begin to move into, into an adult form of spirituality that really, you know, we wouldn't necessarily teach to children at this age they begin to move into doing what the angel asks, this idea of making sacrifices. Yeah,
2: they take it very um, seriously.
3: They certainly do, to the point where, where, as we'll see later, their sacrifices are actually, you know, they're asked to kind of lessen things a little yeah, bit Yeah, take um, it back a notch Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly yeah.
2: And again, we have this where Francesco can only see the apparitions. He cannot mm-hmm. hear them.
3: Yeah.
2: Jacinta can see and hear them, but e- she either cannot or does not speak to them. I, I, yeah. It's unclear whether she, she just doesn't speak or she, or she cannot speak to them. Yeah. Uh, where Lucia can see,
3: hear, and speak to them. Yeah. Where ecstasy is concerned, and we... If someone is, is in a full state of apparition, if it's a proper apparition, then we would say they're, they're in a full state of ecstasis. They are insensible to their surroundings during the time of the apparition. The interesting thing around it is, is that their senses are suspended. And so we see in numerous apparitions, for example, in, in, in Lourdes at one point, Bernadette tries to speak but can't until the apparition gives her permission to speak. In the much, much later, more modern apparitions at uh, Mejigore in, in what was Yugoslavia, currently Croatia, because it was so modern, the visionaries were subjected to all kinds of, of um, measurement, uh, sensory measurement. And what they discovered there was that when the crowd looked and saw and seemed to think that the visionaries were having dialogue with the vision, with the apparition. What was happening, according to the scientists who were measuring them at the time, was that their vocal cords were moving, air was going across the vocal cords, but no sound was coming out. Wow. So, yet according to the visionaries themselves, they could hear the sound of their voice as though normal. So there's some really interesting stuff going on here, which would indicate that even within the differences between the three, that what we're seeing is what we would certainly call a state of of simple ecstasy, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: After they see the angel, the children find themselves, they said, like tired and weak for days afterwards, like they were happy. They, they said they, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to think about the angel, but they just found themselves kind of
3: exhausted. Sure. Yeah. And that's normal with regard to ecstasy as well. And, and lots of people, I'm sure, amongst them, many of your listeners will, will know that when you go through kind of high spiritual experiences, there is often um, a kind of a physical lethargy and weakness afterwards. and and this is true for the for the children as well even in scripture we see it you know how often do the prophets talk about feeling faint after what they have seen or falling falling down after what they've seen and the same is true for the children and it happens after every apparition actually they're left with a deep peace and a great joy but physically they feel exhausted and worn out
2: moving to the fall of 1916 The children are at the boulders on Mount Kabako again. Mm -hmm. They say the rosary and the prayer that the angel taught them. And the angel appears, this time carrying a chalice and a host. The host is dripping blood into the chalice. The angel prostrates on the ground. The host and chalice remain suspended in the air. Very interesting detail. And then the angel says, Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I adore you profoundly and offer you the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the earth, in reparation for the outrages, sacrileges, and indifference by which he himself is offended, and by the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and those of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I beg of you the conversion of poor sinners. He repeated this three times, rose up, and then gave communion to the children. Uh, Lucia Mm. was given the host and Jacinta and Francesco the contents of the chalice. Mm.
3: This is the first time that we see Lucia being separated out from the other two, and and we'll see why as, as time goes on. But this was actually one of the most theologically difficult apparitions for a lot of those who who sort of examined things at the start to understand. Because for those of your listeners who who wouldn't be aware, within Catholic and Orthodox tradition, only a priest can consecrate the Blessed Sacrament, can say the Mass and and so consecrate what we call the host, the bread and the wine to become essentially the body and, and blood of Christ. And that within the Orthodox and Catholic tradition and within some uh, um, Protestant denominations would be considered literally the transubstantiation of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. In other denominations, it's seen in a more commemorative way. Yeah, symbolic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So at this moment, the big question of the theologians was, where did this angel get the Blessed Sacrament? Later, uh, much later in life, Lucia, uh, writing about it, says, it's very simple. He took it from a church. Um, so you know, he's an angel. He can take it from a church with the permission of God, mm-hmm. and so that solved that problem very quickly. Uh, there's never the statement made that the angel, you know, created it or or made it. He simply brought it. Right. Um, in fact, he mentions the tabernacles of the world. You know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, where the Blessed Sacrament, where where the, the, the under the form of the host, it would be kept. Right. Right. So what's interesting again, and I'm not going to go into it usually because that's more of the religious dimension. But I really want to impress upon your listeners, the theology of the prayer is extremely deep. You could write a PhD thesis just on the elements of the prayer itself. But what's happening at the moment is the children are being invited into a particular form of spiritual relationship or sanctity that we would call becoming victim souls. And this is a soul, normally an adult, who consciously chooses to unite their life to the suffering of Christ on behalf of others. And uh, I I suppose for many listeners who maybe wouldn't be aware of this within the Christian tradition, the nearest thing, I I think, to it is the Bodhisattva idea uh, within the Buddhist tradition, which is someone who dedicates their life completely to becoming compassion Mm. in the world. And so this is what's happening to these children. They're being invited into being ministers of compassion, literally reminding the world of the love and the compassion of God.
2: Once again, the children imitate the angel, prostrate. They repeat the new prayer. Again, extraordinary memory. It would take me a good while to memorize that prayer. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And again, they're left physically tired, but emotionally and intellectually stirred.
3: It was definitely felt amongst those who examined the children that their intelligence was far above what you would expect for those children of that place and of that age. Now, that might show the prejudices of some of the more educated people coming from the towns, etc. But at the same time, there is an experience going on that we would speak of as what we call infused knowledge. And that's where the experience that the child is having that the, the seer in this case is having is so numinous and so spiritual that it's being impressed on the intellect like a kind of a stamp and so the young person has perfect recall of it mm. um, perfect recall perfect sensory recall of it no matter what and so, as time goes on, and we'll see many people try and say to the children, you didn't see this, you saw that, or you didn't hear this, you heard that. They remain absolutely word perfect in yeah. everything that they that they saw. And this is something we see in, you know, many, many people who have numinous experiences, even outside of the religious tradition as such. The one way to offend them is to tell them they've seen something else. Right. Because they are so sure, you know, this is more, how often do we hear in inexperiencers statements or stories you know it seemed to be more real than real mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it it has this heightened reality that makes sure the person uh, when they're allowed to remember it remembers it absolutely clearly
2: they are um they're still children they still like mm. to play you know, of course they, they still, but they are really propelled into a, i guess a kind of spiritual maturity that you just mm. don't see i mean in most adults honestly Mm, Absolutely.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. I I mean, where they arrive at and the levels of of sanctity that they arrive at in a very, very short time, to my mind, is one of the greatest validations of of this as a genuine spiritual experience. Mm
2: -hmm. Moving to May 13th, 1917, Mm. our three shepherds are playing in the Covita area. It's a pasture owned by Lucia's family. And this will be become a very important place going forward here mm. they see a bright flash they think it's lightning and they decide well, we better gather a sheep and head for home they're approaching a home oak tree and they see another flash that so they said it was brighter than the first and then they're caught in a glowing light they said it was almost blinding mm. above the branches of the oak they see a beautiful woman they said light seems to radiate from her she seems to be clothed in white light more brilliant than the sun despite this they said they have no difficulty looking at her you could tell Mm -hmm. words fail in their description yeah you know it's brighter than the sun but you know we didn't have any problem looking at her uh they describe her as more beautiful than anything earthly they said her face showed an expression of both maternal sweetness and grave seriousness and sadness her hands are joined at prayer in her chest. Her rosary, with a white crucifix and white beads, which look like pearls, hangs between her palm over the back of her right hand. She's wearing a simple white tunic, which they describe as luminous, which is gathered at the waist with no belt or sash. A white mantle, also glowing, covers her head and shoulders, hangs over her body. At the edge of this, on the sides and bottom, a line of gold. And the gold, they said, seemed to stand out brighter even than the rest somehow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had two pieces of cord that seemed to be made of yellow light hanging from her neck that joined slightly above her waist in another little ball of the same yellow light. About a foot from the edge of the tunic in the center shined a yellow star. So her face, feet, and her hands seemed to be composed of a flesh colored light. So they looked like flesh, but they were also mm-hmm. glowing. She stood delicately on the leaves of the home tree, composed of light which seemed to give off waves, making it appear as if her garments were. We're undulating wow Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
3: you could stop there and just 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 take it yeah uh take a while even to think about it again as you say you know earthly language begins to be a problem here Mm -hmm. this is not conceptual language you know all we can do is speak in the language of metaphor and comparison and so when the heavenly person appears and they are obviously taken aback but again the memory is so real is such a deep experience for them that they never failed in their description you know it never changed even down to these these tiny little details of you know what she was wearing of the the hem of her garment the the rosary being on you know a particular hand etc and there are a couple of things i think that that are that are important the first is this idea that even her body is made of light And this is, again, what we speak of when we speak of the glorified body, that, you know, those saints and holy ones who have arrived at a point where they are completely at one and completely unified with with God. We often hear of the the body kind of transforming itself into light. Again, in other traditions, the Eastern traditions, they would speak of the light body. So this is something that that is, is quite common for higher spiritual personages. That we, we see light, we see um, the idea of light being condensed in some way, that the essence of the being is light. And this is what they are seeing, that this person is is formed of light, uh, while at the same time being clearly an individual, mm-hmm. a person.
2: The lady, and it's important, right now, they only refer to her as a lady. Yeah. Yeah. So They, they, they were honest. We don't know who this is. Yeah. 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 And the the, the lady speaks and says, do not be afraid. I will not harm you. Lucia asks, where are you from? And the lady replies, I'm from heaven. Mm -hmm. And Lucia says, and what is it that you want of me? She says, the lady replies, I've come to ask the three of you to come here for six consecutive months on the 13th day at the same hour. Then I will tell you who I am and what I want. Afterward, I will return here a seventh time. Mm -hmm. Lucia asks, will I go to heaven? And the lady answers, yes, you will. And she says, and Jacinta, yes, and Francisco. And she replies, "He will go, but he must say
3: many beads." Now, that for listeners, that was sort of shorthand for rosaries. Yeah, to pray um, your beads. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's it. It's always an interesting one. Poor Francesco, you know. <laughs> um uh He's told you. You've got to put the effort in. One of the things I think that's present in these dialogues is there's a wonderful. Chi- I mean, we see the child, you know who's who's looking for, you know, what do you want, and will I get to heaven? you know, and it's it's very it's very quick. It's that direct communication that comes from a child that age. and at the same time, that idea of I want to know about my friends as well. you know, if I'm going, I want them all to go with me. Yeah, um, yeah. but the honesty with which it wasn't they they don't present themselves as, you know perfect saints or people to be listened to or anything else. The, immediately they're saying, effort has to be put in mm-hmm. and and um as we'll see as it goes along the apparition you know isn't all sweetness and light And right. um, there is uh there's a very serious note to what's being said
2: lucia then asks about two girls from her town who had recently died and she said is maria Das nevis in heaven the lady answers yes and she said and amelia and the lady answered she will be in purgatory till the end of the world mm-hmm. so Uh, the lady makes a request then she said are you willing to offer yourselves to God and bear all the suffering he wishes to send you as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and of supplication for the conversion of sinners Lucia answers and says yes we are willing the lady says then you will have much to suffer but the grace of God will be your comfort as she says this she opens her hands and an even more intense light shines on the children and they said they felt that this light penetrated their souls uh, the children knelt and prayed, O Most Holy Trinity, I adore you, my God, my God, I love you, in the most blessed sacrament. After a few moments, the lady speaks again. She says, Say the beads each day to obtain peace for the world and the end of the war. She turned slowly, rose and glided towards the east. They said she was surrounded by a vivid light that seemed to open a path for her in the sky. She disappeared in the distance. So from the beginning, Lucia said, we should keep this a secret. And she warned her little cousins not to say a word, not to say a word <laughs> about it. But Jacinta, as soon as she got home, told her mother that they had seen Our Lady. Like she she was mm. you
3: know. Jacinta was very clear from from the beginning who who she believed it to be. Mm. Lucia and Francesco, uh, well, Francesco could only go by what the girls reported to him because he again he saw everything but didn't hear any any anything in the voice. He could see Mary speaking. Uh, and he could hear the replies of the sisters, uh, sorry, of the girls, but he couldn't. He couldn't hear the apparition. He was perfectly happy to do what Lucia had said in terms of keeping it secret. And I think he kind of realised that if if it was said, you know, there might be trouble. It just into being very impetuous, uh, and and still at that at that stage, you know, immediately identified the apparition as as Our Lady. Um, oh, it, uh,
2: important to note too that, and Lucia describes this uh, in in some of her uh, notes on it. Mm. how important and how much of their it was impressed upon them not to lie. Mm. This is a, a very big thing,
3: she said, particularly in her family. Like, you just never tell a lie. You just do not lie. Yeah. And, there comes a moment later, much, much later, where Lucia is accused of having received money from somebody. Mm. Um, and she is adamant that she didn't. And, you know, they were different days, but she speaks of her, her mother, you know, taking up the broom handle and giving her clothes a good dusting is the way she puts it. <laughs> mm. And she said only when the, only when all the dust was gone, you know, was the mother satisfied that she was still telling the truth. So they knew what would happen if they were caught out in a lie yeah. um, and that it wouldn't be pleasant. And yet they maintained the, the, the truth of this throughout.
2: Yeah they were immediately uh, so the word gets out this is a small village yeah. right as soon as yeah. Jacinta says uh, we saw you know something yeah. amazing it gets out quickly and you, you know this is probably some of the trials the vision was, was relating uh, start straight sure. away because they're mm-hmm. immediately accused of lying by many including Lucia's own mother
3: yeah um, and it was a long time before Lucia's mother accepted there was mm-hmm. anything going on yeah long time actually yeah
2: but they always stick to their story mm-hmm hey, That's amazing. So the next month, you know, the word has gotten out. It's June 13th, 1917. About 50 people have gathered in the cove. And about noon, Lucia sees a flash of light. The seers run to the home oak, followed by the crowd. They kneel. The crowd does the same. And the children seem to be in ecstasy. They're silent and gazing at the treetop. The lady has appeared again. And Lucia asks, what do you want of me? And some of the onlookers strain to hear a reply. And they said they heard a sound like a buzzing bee. Mm. Which, again, you can check one of those boxes for. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Fairies and UFOs. Others Mm. said they heard a sound like distant voices. Mm. And the the lady says again, I want you to come here on the 13th of the coming month, and I want you to recite the beads every day. I desire that you learn to read. Very interesting. Mm. That's a very interesting point. Mm. Uh, Later, I will tell you what I want. lucia said there's a cripple who asks that you cure him the lady says tell them and if he converts himself he will be cured within a year and lucia said i would like to ask you to take us to heaven the lady replies yes i will take jacinta and francesco within a short while but you are to remain on earth for some time longer jesus wants to use you to make me known and loved he wants to establish in the world the devotion to my immaculate heart to those who embrace it i promise salvation These souls will be loved by God, like flowers placed by me to adorn his throne. Lucia then asks, I'm to remain here alone? And the lady replies, No, my daughter. Does this cause you to suffer much? Don't be discouraged. I will never abandon you. My immaculate heart will be your refuge and the way that will lead you to God. She opened her hands, and the children are again enveloped in light. She holds a rosary in her right hand. A heart appears in front of her on the left side. This is encircled by thorns, which seem to pierce the heart on every side. Of the entire apparition, they said only the thorns were not composed of light. They said they were brown and natural-looking. After this, the apparition rises, floats off to the east as before. No one but the seers could see the apparition. But as it departed, several people said they heard an explosion... So described by some as underground thunder. There's another, check Check another box, mm-hmm, paranormal mm-hmm. folks. And others described it as a rocket taking off. So the onlookers saw a smoke-like white cloud rise from the tree and depart to the east. So they were seeing things. The other people were seeing
3: things. They just weren't seeing what the seers were seeing. Yes, absolutely. And I think what, what's what's interesting around this is the second time that the children are enveloped by by this particular light again within the mystical tradition there's this idea that we speak of three distinct stages of spiritual life the first is is purgative which is about literally the purification of the self the conversion of the ego moving from a kind of a selfish way of life to a generous way of life and most the vast majority of human beings that's the stage we're at you know we're, we're working on uh, working on ourselves as best we can the second stage is called the illuminative. And when purgation has finished, the illuminative is this idea that the soul is penetrated by divine light in such a way that it now has total knowledge of itself and of God. And this may manifest in various charisms like um, clairaudience, clairvoyance, etc., these, these kind of ideas also sort of at times telepathy or the knowing of, of secrets or knowledge that, that they would not otherwise know, the infused knowledge that I meant before. But one of the elements of that illumination is a strengthening, a strengthening of the will. So that, so that the human will begins to rest more fully and completely within the divine will. And that, to my mind, is what we're seeing here, that these young people, as young as they are, are being in some way strengthened or infused with light so as to be able to carry these these messages forward and to be able to live according to the, the wishes of the visions for them. The other element I think that's really interesting around it is, is this idea of the people leaning in to try and hear what's being said, yeah. you know. This is not, you know, a nice crowd standing respectfully off at a distance. Um, The children were often jostled. Mm. Um, They could find themselves being surrounded. People were waving hands in front of their faces. There are reports, um, certainly from other apparitions as well as these, You know, of people actually actively pinching or or hurting or even, you know, shining lights and eyes and doing all of these kind of things. Yes, sticking them with pins. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this was not a pleasant experience of people standing around respectfully and sort of, you know, children getting kind of a buzz out of being famous or celebrities. It was was quite a frightening experience for them in terms of the people, except in, in the moment of the apparition. And then, as you mentioned, you know, what's also interesting is the fact that many people see and hear different things depending on, on who they are and where they are, everything from the, the rocket taking off to the, to the underground uh, thunder noises. And again, these all seem to be elements that we find in any kind of major numinous event.
2: post part two of my conversation on fatima with brother richard soon i want to thank new patron elizabeth patrons and donations help me keep making the flower path and bringing you more content all patrons get the regular episodes of the flower path ad-free often before they drop on the regular podcast feed rose and orchid tier patrons also get shout outs on the show orchid tier patrons get monthly merch mailings this month they are getting color prints of my illustration of Our Lady of Fatima. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash Path. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash thefloweredpath, on Instagram at thefloweredpath, and on the web at thefloweredpath.com.